0: You are listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. I'm going to talk this morning on playing the long game. Playing the long game. and The spiritual life is much more like chess than checkers. How many of you are aware of that? And um, it's a life where instant gratification does not generally lead to long term success. So playing the long game means taking the necessary steps now to set yourself up for long term success. And it means not sacrificing long term gains for short term wins. Um, our lives are not like a 30 minute sitcom where everything is quickly resolved. But it's more like one of those long movies, so long you have to have an intermission in the middle where you break for popcorn in the bathroom. That's more like it, right? Uh, It's through faith and patience. Say this with me. It is through faith and patience. We do not... Like the word patience. It is through faith and patience we inherit the kingdom. And we can't give up in those in-between times. An in-between time is the time where it all falls apart and it has to come back together again. That's like walking out of a movie that turns out really, really good, that's really, really bad, right at the intermission. We can't bail out during intermission. You're going to miss it. I've actually thought this. If you practice some basic Christian virtues, one of them in particular being Thanksgiving, even if your life is completely, totally falling apart, it can get worse. (laughs) Now, I say that to say this. It doesn't have to get worse, even if it's falling apart, even if it's difficult, even if the quote breakthrough hasn't come or the turn hasn't come. If you practice basic Christian virtues like trusting in God and being thankful, you are automatically making your life better than it is. Are you listening? It's important to practice those, those virtues. And when I say life could always get worse, We have the capacity to make it better ourselves through our attitude, and the Lord can make changes. The Lord can do something for us. You hear that? We just can't control him. How many of you are upset that we have so little control over the Lord? And Father, you can tell the truth. It's okay. He already knows you believe that way. (laughs) Okay. But God. We're called to walk with Jesus for the long haul if we're going to reap the full benefits of this life of faith. So this morning I wanted to tell um, a story of faith that's almost 3,000 years old. And it's about a notable woman, a woman of substance who lived in Israel in a little town called Shunem. And the story revolves around her relationship with a prophet named Elisha and how God moved in her life and family over an extended period of time. So I've got some notes uh, from a Bible introduction to the book of Second Kings, which sets the stage, and this story is in Second Kings, and I'll read some of it to you in just a minute. But I want to give some background about what was going on in this particular historic period. Elisha was a prophet to Israel during a dark time in its history. The kingdom has been divided. There's a great division in the kingdom. Anybody familiar with the great division in a nation? But the kingdom is divided between what was known as the northern kingdom, they called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which they called Judah. You may not have all this background, but it's interesting and important. The northern kingdom had a continual or relentless succession of bad kings who did not follow the Lord. The time was characterized by division, idolatry and sexual immorality this dark period in the northern kingdom is interrupted only by the ministries of such godly prophets as Elijah how many of you heard of Elijah and his protege or his assistant or under be trained under him named Elisha and Elisha is the one we're going to look at some today he is the successor to Elijah and his ministry Was characterized by miraculous provision of provisions of sustenance, food, and life. Raised some people from the dead. Through him, God demonstrated his gracious care for the nation and his concern for anyone who desired to come to him, come to the Lord. And one of those people was this wealthy woman from Shunem that the Bible never names but simply identifies her as the Shunammite woman. And so this Shunammite woman um, had a heart for the Lord, and she was attracted to uh, the ministry of Elisha. And Elisha's ministry at this point consisted of traveling a circuit where he preached or prophesied, and then he had a school of the prophets where he trained um, other young men. And so the story unfolds that I'm referring to here in 2 Kings 4, verses 8 through 17, and I'll read this to you. Uh, You can look it up if you'd like. It's really, really significant. The thing that struck me when I was reading through all this was there are three specific stories about this woman, and I never put all three of them together. And what we're going to see is this, the life she lived Which is really typical, I believe, of the life of the believer. It's got peaks, it's got valleys. It's got valleys, it's got peaks. But there's this consecutive, consistent life that we have to learn how to live no matter what's going on. Are you, are you with me? That's why we, one of the reasons we come here, and coming to church doesn't do it all, actually, but we try to learn something. We try to develop relationships with people. We try to find um, people that can help. I got a call recently from, uh, well, let me get into that. You know people need help? They really do. But there's something wonderful that can happen in a person's life, even in the midst of difficulty, that that um, I believe is actually essential. I believe it's an essential experience to go through things we would never Volunteer for that we would kick and scream about. But if the disciples and the apostles had to go through the passion week and the confusion and the the dismay and the fear and the disappointment, you and I need to understand the same thing because there's something that happens during those times where God is working in the dark and we don't even know it. We're going to see that. So 2 Kings 4, now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem where there was a notable woman and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and he lay down there. So apparently this woman was wealthy enough to have a wall around her property that was big enough to actually build a room on. So she was a very significant lady. So every time Elisha comes through there, that's where he stays. So Elisha says to Gehazi, his servant, Called this Shumanite woman, Shunamite. Say Shunamite 13 times backwards. Called this Shunamite woman. When he called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, Say now to her, Look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. What she was saying, I've looked this up, is. Everything's all right. I don't need anything. So he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. So he said, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, he prophesied to her, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord. Man of God, do not lie to your maid servant. Anybody feel any emotion there? But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come of which Elisha had told her. And so here's the story developing. As Elisha travels and preaches, he meets this Unamite woman. She convinces him to stay for a meal, which turns into a relationship as she's pursuing God. They build him a little place where he can stay. And then he so appreciates her. He's so grateful for her care her kindness that he wants to do something for her. So he prophesies to her that she's going to have a child. And she flips out. Well, all of that reveals... Um, you have to think about it. What was she thinking? How did she feel? Let's say she was thinking, all my life I never had children. I wanted them. She, I believe, had to deal with the disappointment of not having had a son. Um, Or she at least was expressing her inability to believe the impossible prospects of having one now with her husband being an old man. But a year later, she has a son. Isn't that wonderful? How many people think that's wonderful? Yeah. Storybook ending to a wonderful life. Wealthy, happy. Didn't have a child, wanted one, gave up on it. It was okay. She adjusted. Then she has a child. Storybook ending. No, not really. What what what? what? The child dies. What do you think she's going through? Now I can't. There are people in this room, right now. I could give you three names, four names, instantly, who have lost close relatives, and they didn't make it. Donna's sister didn't make it. I see uh, Blake and Hillary sitting in the back, and uh, Blake's brother, and we have. Um, uh, well, I'm just talking to other people, and they've lost, and and God didn't seem to come through. Well, think about what's going on with her. She's at a loss without having a child. Then God intervenes in her life and gives her the child, and then she loses a child. Think about the emotion. Think about the up and down. Think about the doubt. Think about the fear. Think about what's going on in her heart. What would you think about the Lord? Give you a child, take away a child. What is up with that? How do you process that? I don't know how you process that. You do the best you can. So the verse here says, as it happened, one day the child went out to his father, to the reapers. He said, my head, my head. So he said to a servant, we'll carry him to his mother. So he's having a headache when he had taken him and brought him to his mother he sat on her knees till noon and then died and so the rest of this story is is quite involved just as remarkable i would i would suggest you read it out of second kings 4 but the woman takes her child up to the prophet's chamber there the apartment on her uh, attached to her home and puts him on the prophet's bed, and then leaves him to find the prophet. What a story right how do you How do you even process all of this well it 's not over yet now, when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet but Gehazi that 's elisha 's assistant came near to push her away. but the man of God said, "Leave her alone for her soul is in." Deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me, and has not told me and and so here 's what the, the 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 Shunammite woman says, "Did I ask a son of my lord? Did I ask for this? Did I come to you and say, Will you somehow because you're a prophet that 's not normal and has I don't know what you call it—miraculous powers or an aspect of ministry or something—to where you could release to me the capacity. Did I uh, to to have a child? Did I ask for this? Is this what I told you I wanted? Did I not say, "Do not deceive me"? Don't make me this promise and not fulfill it, was what she was saying before she had the child. Now she's had the child and the child is gone. And she's bringing all of this back to the prophet. And her, I don't know, what's the proper word? Her angst is so poignant. She didn't ask for miraculous birth. She becomes pregnant. How does that happen? Loves her son Her son passes away. She is heartbroken and she feels wronged and she feels deceived. She feels like she's been lured into a situation to love, to give herself again to this son. And his death is so beyond her ability to cope. She was given by the prophet a promise she may have once dreamed of. She longed for, but had given up on it only be to give in hope once again, then to see that hope literally and supernaturally fulfilled, and then to see it all come crashing down and her child was gone and God had somehow done it. What do you do with that? So she pours out her complaint to Elisha, and this is inexplicable, but this is what the Bible tells us. Wonder of wonders, he goes back to that chamber and through a process, he raises the boy from the dead and his mother has her child back. Wow, end of the story, right? Say end of the story. End of the story. Happy ending, right? Beautiful sunset in the background, swelling orchestral music fades out. And everything's wonderful, right? Wrong. Wrong? Wrong. What happens? Well, sometime later, and the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how much later, the prophet returns to the home of the Shunammite woman and her family with an important announcement. Here's what he says to her. Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. What? Leave? Stay wherever we can for seven years? Can you imagine that? The Lord coming saying, "Hey, things are going to get real bad for seven years. You know that nice estate you have that you own that you don't owe any money on? Leave it. Go. Seven years." What was everybody in here doing seven years ago? Was seven years ago a long time? Well, seven years. It is a long time. How old were you? What were you doing? What were you thinking? It's a long time. Seven years. Guess what she does because she knows this prophet. She does what he says and she leaves. And then the famine ends. And she comes back. And it says this. It came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and she went in to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. So she leaves and somebody takes her land, takes her house. And so she goes to the king. Well, here's the interesting thing. The king talked with Gehazi. Gehazi, I don't know how you say that, but that's the servant of the man of God. So the king is talking to Elisha's um, assistant or servant, and the king says, tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. Now, it happened as he was telling the king how he would restore the dead to life. There was the woman whose son he had restored to life appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi says, my lord, O king, this is the woman and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. What are the chances? What are the odds? How many of you also like this God who does things sovereignly? The God who, at the first QCC picnic, Shelly meets one of her best friends. Somebody ought to like that. Somebody. Well, I know Shelly likes it. That's good, yeah. There can all always be God Doing something that takes no cooperation on our part to do an amazing, amazing thing. Through all this, we need to also remember that. Did it come by faith? No. Did it come by obedience? No. What happened? God simply did it. She found herself inexplicably without knowledge of what would happen in the right place, at the right time, and here's what the king said. He appointed an officer for her saying, restore. Somebody say that word, restore. Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day she left the land until now. Seven-year famine uproots her family, moves, loses her land, loses her income. People come and take what she had, and God miraculously, sovereignly restores to her everything she had. How do you make sense of her life? Do you know what the common theme is throughout all the ups and downs of her life? Do you know what thread runs through there? It's this thread. You can trust God. You can trust him. Don't bail out. All of this reminded me of the Passion Week and of what the apostles and what the disciples went through. And one of the things, I preached about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, but this is a an addendum to it. This is a very important addendum when I was talking about Meet Me in Galilee. Do any of you remember that message on Meet Me in Galilee? Oh, well, I'll go, I'll, I'll go ahead and develop it all. It'll take about an hour. No, no. No, Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, made one specific directive and only one. He had an angel tell his uh, disciples, and then he appeared to them supernaturally in a room suddenly and told him, meet me in Galilee. You will find me there. You will see me there. He said two different things. Now, here's the problem. Jesus appears to them again eight days later, and guess where they are? Not in Galilee. (laughs) They're behind locked doors. They're afraid. So he keeps coming to them to encourage them to go back to their roots to go back to their beginnings. He says, I'm going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see me there. Then he says another time, throw off all your fears. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will find me there. And they didn't go. Finally, seven of them go. How many apostles were there at that time? 11. Judas the 12th was dead. There were 11 apostles. And only seven of them actually go back to Galilee. Do you see how hard it is for Jesus to help us? (laughs) And these are like the leader types. These are not lesser, that's not a good way to put it, but these are like guys that are supposed to know what they're doing. Even Jesus had trouble getting the guys who knew what they were doing to do the thing, to posture themselves for a place to receive and and get blessed and go the distance, play the long game, not quit, not give up, not back up, not leave during intermission, not give in to the in-between time. When everything seems impossible. Because it's not impossible if God's in it. It's not. And whatever loss, whatever loss, and we've had losses, you've had losses. And I don't mean God will necessarily restore exactly what we lost, but he can restore to us whatever it takes to bridge the gap in our hearts with how that loss has affected us to the degree that it's not that painful thing anymore. He can do that, and he will do it. I have testimony in my own life. I've seen the Lord do that. It's amazing. So 11 apostles go down to Galilee, and Peter says the classic expression, I go fishing. So the rest of them said, we're going to go with you. So what happens? In Galilee, at dawn, Jesus is standing on the shore, but his disciples didn't realize it was him. They say it's always darkest just before the dawn. Dawn is that in-between time, isn't it? Where it could still be dark, but it's still becoming light. And so Jesus calls out, hey, guys, did you catch any fish? And they respond, not a thing. They've been... Fishing all night. Does that sound like a familiar story? Jesus said to them, throw your net over the starboard side and you'll catch some. And so they did. And they caught so many fish they couldn't even pull in the net. Does that sound like a familiar story? Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Peter heard him say that, he quickly wrapped his outer garment around him, and because he was athletic, he dove right into the lake to go to Jesus. This is the Passion translation. He was athletic. The rest of those guys rowed in, I guess I don't. Know. The other disciples then brought the boat to shore, dragging their catch of fish. They weren't far from land, only about 100 meters, 370 feet. When they got to shore, they noticed a charcoal fire with some roasted fish and bread. Then Jesus said, bring some of the fish you just caught. So Peter waded into the water and helped pull the net to shore. It was full of many large fish, exactly 153, but even with so many fish, the net was not torn. Why did Jesus say go back to Galilee? Because he was going to recommission these disappointed, misunderstanding apostles. And he was going to do it in the very same way, with one exception, as he did when he called them three years earlier at that same place. Once again, they fished all night without catching anything. Once again, Jesus tells them to cast their net cast their nets on the other side of the boat, and they'll have a miraculous catch. But this time their nets did not break. And I thought about those nets. What's that all about? Well, just like the nets broke during their initial calling, all the disciples' faith had broken during the Passion Week. Because of what happened during the Passion Week, during the week Jesus was crucified, Because of the confusion, the faith that they had prior to the resurrection could not actually sustain them for the life God had called them to. Their faith had broken just like those nets had broken. But when Jesus recommissions them and they're on the other side of that confusion, when they have seen him alive And they realized there was more to this than we understood. That God is better than we realized. That he is capable of more than we really understood. They developed a faith that could not be broken. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus was on the shore and he already had fish. He had fish without fishing. When without him, the apostles had no fish after fishing all night long. Jesus can do in the nighttime what no one else can do, even in the daytime, even in the best of circumstances, even with every benefit, every opportunity, You cannot accomplish what he can do with no help. Whatever. And he can prepare that. And he can give it to you and feed you with it and nourish you and bring you into a new place in God. Jesus can do in the night what no else can do. And Jesus, listen to me now, Jesus has been working in our night. During these last weeks, these last months, even these last years and decades, I'll tell you what he's doing. He's preparing another harvest. He's preparing another great catch of fish. This thing ain't over. It's not over. What God wants to do is not over. Just looks over. Looks like it. What's that got to do with it? Can we learn nothing from this Shunammite woman? Can we learn nothing from the life of Jesus? Can we just throw it all in? Can we just uh, uh, <clears throat> leave during intermission, get our popcorn, go sulking to the parking lot, drive home and complain, uh, cast all uh, faith aside and say this will never work? Oh, of course it's going to look like it never works. That's what you go through till it works. Yeah, yeah, so he had been doing more in the dark. And we know it was during those times Jesus convinced that ragtag group of disciples, men and women to play the long game, play the long game. Your life fell apart. Well, what was it supposed to do? It happens. Come on. Is that, is that cynical? No, it's reality, but it doesn't have to stay that way. No, trust God again. you got to play the long game. We can't sacrifice the fullness of what God wants to do in us for momentary convenience or pleasures or compromises or confusions or distractions or heartaches. But our spiritual lives have peaks and valleys and valleys and peaks. But God's ultimate desire is to reveal himself to us in all of it and restore everything that's been lost or neglected or stolen. Dark night's end and the sun always rises. Do you know the truth about the sun rising? It really never rises. It was there the whole time. It didn't go anywhere. We went somewhere. Boy, I'm glad the sun came up today. Well, it really didn't. It was there all the time. He was there all the time. Oh, sorry. Dark nights in, the sun always rises. Four last words. Give. Give.